in light of the Sunday school lesson that we had today from Jude, I will admit to you that I stand before you this morning with a, a sense of trepidation a little bit because it is my desire that whatever I say here this morning in no way pollutes God's word. And if I say something that you feel like is not biblical or does not line up with scripture, please do me a favor and come to me and share because I do not want to do anything to pollute my blessed Lord's word. You know, we have entered into a period of the year when we have joined in a flurry of activities. There are many places to go. There's a lot of food preparation. There's consideration and buying of gifts for loved ones. There's many family activities, and there's many church activities, and you can fill in the blank. And these things are not wrong in themselves, but I submit to you that we need to be very careful because these things can be a means of distracting us from what should be central, and that is Jesus Christ. So does God's word have anything to say about the subject of keeping our focus and maintaining our priorities? What does God's word say? And I guess I would tell you that I was blessed this past week uh, with scripture. There was two scriptures that came to mind as I thought in preparation of this sermon this morning. And they came to me while I was having my personal devotions and they might even be in a tree stand. I'm not sure. But these two passages came to me this, this week and I'd like to share them with you this morning. The title of the message is, Does Jesus Reign Preeminent? And please, I don't mean to raise a question to whether Jesus really is preeminent. Absolutely he is. But as I think of your experience, your life, and my life, does Jesus reign preeminent? I think there are times, if we're not careful, that these distractions could cause Jesus not to be reigning preeminent like he should. And so that is the goal this morning, to, to ask the question, in thinking about my life and your life, does Jesus reign preeminent? For a text, I would invite you to James chapter 4, verse 15. I'd like to use this for a text, but broaden it a little bit. But I'd like to look at this text. James chapter 4, verse 15. The Bible says, For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live, and do this or that. You know, this verse 15, it begs the question, who is Lord of my life? Do I have the prerogative to plan my life outside of his guidance and direction? What is the true definition of lordship? What's the true definition of submission and of surrender? Does Jesus reign preeminent in my life? Now I would like to read the verses in context the first point of the message, is Jesus central in all our planning? Now let's drop back to verses 13 and read verses 13 to 17. James 4, verses 13 to 17. Go to now 
Ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Some years ago, we often heard of, of people that would put these rubber uh, bracelets on their arm and said WWJD. How many of y'all remember that? Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we go and seek out a Christian bookstore that we find these bracelets and put them on, put them on our wrist that says WWJD. However, I would certainly support the idea of us having a continual God consciousness as we plan our activities. Maybe we don't wear a rubber bracelet, WWJD. But are we God conscious in all our planning and all our activities? Does Jesus reign supreme? Is he preeminent? And I suggest to you that to leave God out of the equation is a sure recipe for a completely unfulfilling life and one that ends in destruction. Verse 13, Jesus, it's, I'm sorry, James is warning us to look beyond the temporal pursuits of life. It says, go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we'll, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. He's warning us against the pursuits of life. And actually, that's what they are. They are just a pursuit. And when you're chasing or pursuing, in, in this case, you never really catch or you never really achieve the desired objective, which is happiness. And maybe to illustrate that, a couple months ago, I saw uh, a race, I don't know if it was in Australia or Brazil, but there were some greyhounds, six or eight of these greyhounds, and they were chasing a mechanical rabbit. And they just couldn't quite catch up to this rabbit. Obviously, the mechanical rabbit is just ahead of them, and they never would catch it. And you know, sad to say, there's a lot of people in our world today that are chasing, they're pursuing something that they'll never catch. And the sad thing is, after a lot of time and effort, and a lot of money, they might, they will eat, reach the end of life, and they realize that they have wasted all that time and effort and money seeking something of no lasting value. Verse 14, whereas you know not what shall be on the, the morrow, it is impossible for us to know the future, but we need to apply what we do know. What do we know? Well, we know about our mortality. The Bible tells us that we live for 70, or if by strength, 80 years, but we know that life is short. I think if I would ask some of these ladies, these uh, widows, on the, and I don't mean to to make you feel bad, but if I would ask you how, 
How did you get here so quick? I mean, you might be 70, you might be 80 years old, but I think they would tell us, life is short, it's fleeting, it goes so quick. And I guess I would say that I feel like in the, this last year, I've got more aches and pains than I had in, well, I've just seen uh, an increase of some aches and pains, and that's kind of a sad thing to say for somebody 65 years old, but it's true. Time is fleeting. Life is short. It is quick. What do we know? Um, well, God's Word speaks to it. What do we know? Psalm 90, verse 10. The Bible says, The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. That's God's word. Life is short. 70, 80 years. But I can ask you, is there any way to slow down the clock? What can we do? There's nothing we can do about that. We cannot slow down the clock. We cannot slow down the time. And I meant to also read verse 12. Psalm 90, verse 12. What shall we do then, knowing these things? So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. The Bible also tells us you have brought nothing into this world, and it's certain you can take nothing out. And then we get to our text, where it's James 4, 15. And I would ask you, do you think that the great God that we serve has a desire to reveal his will to you in your, about your life? And I guess I'm literal enough to take God's word at face value. What does God's word say? Thinking about God's will, we should be planning and living our lives in light and considering him. What does he want? Verse, uh, James chapter 1, verse 5, For if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. So I ask you a question. Does our pride reduce the power of God? No, our pride does not reduce the power of God. But let me ask it another way. Does our pride obstruct the power of God? And I think it does. If we have pride in our life, I believe that obstructs the power of God. So we need to recognize our weakness. We need to recognize our own inability. And then if we're willing to do that, we're willing to lay pride aside and we realize that we are so limited, we can ask, seek, and knock. And the Bible says it will be opened unto us. Verses 16 and 17. I would ask another question. Do wrong motives obstruct our hearing answers from God? What do you think? Do wrong motives or selfish ambition obstruct our hearing answers from God? And I submit to you that seeking God on His terms may open the door to questions that we thought that were not possible. I'm sorry. I submit to you that seeking God on His terms may open the door to answers we never thought possible. 
I was reminded of Ephesians 3, verse 20, where it says, I should be able to quote that, um, but I'll turn to it. Ephesians 3, 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. And then another verse of scripture that, that I like is Second Chronicles chapter 16. God's word says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. How are we seeking God? Do we have wrong motives when we're seeking him? And does that possibly obstruct us from hearing answers from God? Let's lay pride aside and seek him and ask him for the needs that we have. The second passage that I was impressed uh, this past week uh, was 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. And the second point of the message is this. Have I discarded or have I abandoned the old life for the new? Is that in your case? Have you abandoned the old life for the new? And I would like to consider verses 7 to 11... But to put it in its proper context, I'd like to read the first six verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for, that, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his life in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. We're talking about the old life that we used to live, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of right, speaking evil of you who shall give account to them that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to the God in the spirit. This is talking about the old life. And it's a vivid contrast in verses 1 to 6 of the old life and what comes later in verses 7 to 11. Peter reminds us of the futility of the old life that we have there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. So we're talking about transformation, a life that's transformed from the old life to the new. And I'd like to share this past week I heard two conversations, one that highlights the old life and one that highlights the new. The first conversation that I heard happened to be on the radio, and there was a respondee to a talk show or something, 
And he was espousing and said the United States was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And, he, and this person was talking about how they seemed to appreciate that our country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And I was agreeing. I thought what, he, what this person had to say was pretty good until he said, this person said, me and my husband or something like that, and, and then I started to try and to listen. I, the person that was talking sounded like a man, and he, he, talked, he referred to his husband. And then I suddenly was very saddened by what I heard. To be glad, to be happy that our country is founded on Judeo-Christian principles. But is there any transformation in our lives no, I'm not suggesting that any of us are anywhere close to what, what I heard, but I was really saddened, and it really took the appreciation away that I had for what I thought I was hearing uh, after he went a little further and revealed something about his life. The second conversation I heard was Thursday when we went to the Pike Church and Brother Mark Hellman, Helmuth had a sermon on Hezekiah. And I appreciated the application and the parallels. And I'm not going to re-preach Mark Helmuth's sermon, but he talked about how Hezekiah, Hezekiah was concerned about the condition of the temple and how nothing could happen in a temple. I think the, his first point was you have to open the doors. And he used that as a, an application of we need to open the doors of our heart. When Jesus stands at the door knocking, nothing can be done, nothing can be cleansed until we're willing to open the door and allow Jesus to come in. And then he went on to talk about cleansing and sanctification. And I just thought he did a really nice job of making application to the life of Hezekiah. And that is what you and I are called to. We're talking about transformed transformed from the old life to the new life. And I was blessed by that, especially blessed by that second conversation. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. I'd like to share something with you. Do you think this is true? Our lives are an expression of our nutrition. Our lives are an expression of our nutrition. What are you feeding on? What am I feeding on? And I really think there's a lot of truth to that. You and I have choices every day. And I think if we're not careful, we can think, well, this isn't that bad or that isn't that bad. And we began to listen to hear those things. And then we recognize there is some real fallacy in what I'm listening to. Does those things affect us? I'm just saying, let's be careful. What are we feeding on? How much time are we spending in God's word and seeking him in prayer? Now I'd like to read verses 7 to 11. 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. And this is the phrase that really stood out to me uh, from this past week. Verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. What does that, how does that speak to you? 
Does that, do you just pass it off? Or what does that say to you? But the end of all things is at hand, God's word says. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Thinking about the old life. But here in Peter, he says, but the end of all things is at hand. Does that speak to your heart? It should speak to us. I think it's rather sobering. Is there anything more sobering to realize that the sands of time are very near the end? Is that sobering to you? But the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things are very near. Or as the Bible says in another place, even at the door. What should that do to us? What do we know? We know that life is short. We know that judgment is coming. We know that there are only two destinies. There's heaven and there's hell. And we know eternity is forever. Those things we do know. I say those things are sobering. Verse 8, it says that we are to have fervent charity among ourselves. And I thought I knew what fervent meant. And I looked it up in the Strong's. I thought fervent meant hot and active. It does in a way, but it, it defined it this way. Fervent charity means without ceasing. A continual, that's what you and I are called to do. After the old life, this is what we are called to in the new life. We are to have fervent charity without ceasing among ourselves. And I would tell you, submit to you, that Sally and I have had numerous of you who recently have reached out to us with cards of encouragement, with gifts of kindness, gift cards, calls, whatever, recently. I'd like to say thank you. You know what that does for me? It makes me want to be faithful to God and to you, the congregation. Little things, fervent charity, continual to each other. What does it do for us? What a blessing. And the Bible says that love shall cover a multitude of sins. What does that mean? And I would submit to you that a critical spirit seeks opportunity to condemn. Is that true? A critical spirit seeks opportunity to condemn. But what are you and I called to? A loving spirit seeks opportunity to overlook offenses. I guess I'm reminded 
And I guess it's okay to share a bouquet if it's in, in a good light. I understand some years ago that my Aunt Orpha Wanger was serving over at Mount Hermon and they said that she was a fire extinguisher. A loving spirit seeks opportunity to overlook offenses. Are we one that is looking for an opportunity to pick up the phone and say, hey, did you hear what I heard? I can't believe it. Or are we one, and I'm not saying to overlook sin and just cast it off. I'm not saying that. But are we a person who is of a critical spirit or do we have a loving spirit that we're called to? The choice is ours. But which one are you? Verse 9. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. I submit to you that a loving spirit does not calculate cost. Or a loving spirit does not give in the hope of a payback. A loving spirit seeks opportunity. And I submit to you, we should not serve out of obligation, but rather a privilege. It's a privilege and an honor to God. Now, when Brother Elam preached here, our Bible conference, I don't think somebody had to lasso him and tell him he had to preach or, or put a lot of undue pressure on him. I think Brother Elam preached because it was a privilege. How is it with you? When you lead songs, when you teach Sunday school class, is it a privilege? Or when you have someone in your home, uh, and maybe you go the extra mile, is it an obligation or is it a privilege? And Jake can speak to himself. Is it a privilege to preach to you or an obligation? And it does make a difference. God help us to serve because it's a privilege. And I believe it's motivated by what Jesus has done for us. The more we recognize of the tremendous blessings and gifts that Jesus and the Holy Spirit has given us, the more we understand that, the better we will serve. And it'll make a difference as we relate to each other. Verse 10. And as everyone hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. One of the songs that we sang a while ago, I'm just so amazed how often God is able to orchestrate through a service and he makes things mesh together. together. Daniel, I think you led this a while ago. Number 668, the last verse said, To thee, we're talking about someone to thank, Daniel. To thee, from whom we all derive our life, our gift, our power to give. Oh, may we ever with thee live, who give us all, who give us all. And I just thought that fits so well with the sermon. God does that over and over again. Meshes the service together and to bring honor and glory to the Son. 
It talks about gifts here. God excludes no son or daughter of his. There is always a gift or gifts, plural, to serve the body of Christ. And I submit to you, you and I are called to be a conduit of his grace to others. You and I have no ability on our own to produce the content of blessing. We have nothing to do with that. God is the giver. He is the one. Maybe we could, I'm sorry, this is maybe kind of elementary, but maybe we are just the garden hose. It's God that is the one who inserts the contents of blessings, and we're just a hose, and we're just a pitcher, something that God can use to bless others. We are insignificant. He is our all in all. God is the source, and we are just the container God uses to distribute his goodness. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure, or these blessings, in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So the contents is from him. We're just a conduit that he desires to use. Are we usable? Verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If we speak, let's choose our words carefully. We have the privilege of representing our loving Father and to offer hope to a dying world. And if any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. God is the giver. He's the one who gives the ability. And then we desire that God be glorified. So whatever gift God has given you, use it cheerfully. Use it not as an obligation, but as a privilege to serve the body of Christ. We were talking about transformation this morning, thinking about the old life and what God has called us to in the new life. In conclusion, as people observe your life and mine, is there evidence to support? Is there substance to prove that indeed Jesus is reigning preeminent? But really, brothers and sisters, God's perspective is the only judgment that will matter in the end.